Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Omolade Adumbi, author of Enclaves of Exception, Special Economic Zones and Extractive Practices in Nigeria, published last year by Indiana University Press. Dr. Adumbi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Nielsen, for inviting me to your podcast. Um, so uh, my background is in uh, anthropology, and uh, I am a professor of anthropology, professor of Afro-American African Studies at the University of uh, Michigan in Ann Arbor. And uh, uh, my areas of research are in the extractive uh, industries, energy practices, transnational institutions, and the post-colonial state. So uh, the idea behind this book started when I was completing my last book on oil, wealth, and insurgency in Nigeria. And that time, I came across a lot of uh, uh, Chinese entrepreneurs who were interested in investing in the oil industry in Nigeria. And that freaked my interest that, okay, maybe when this project is completed, then I'm going to look at uh, China's engagement with uh, Africa. But as you can see in the book, even though it started like a China project, but at some point, it took a completely different turn. Of course, there are three chapters that focuses on China's interest in Africa, particularly in Nigeria there. But it turned out to be a comparative study of uh, what exactly are extractive practices and what are economic zones, particularly special economic zones. So that is uh, uh, one of the motivations for uh, writing this book. Okay, well, so let's start with the the Chinese dimension there, because you talk about the special economic zones that are being set up in Nigeria where Chinese investors are coming so why are China and Nigeria each interested in setting up these special economic zones? What are they 
uh, get out of this arrangement? Yeah, thank you very much for that question. Uh, one thing we should note is that uh, the old idea of special economic zones or free trade zones, as uh, they are fondly called in some quarters, it's not particularly, uh, it's not so, something that is particular to China. Uh, prior to China's engagement with Nigeria, Nigeria had actually established some free trade zones, particularly in the 80s and 90s. And these were known as export processing zones. And the whole idea emanated from some of the prescriptions by the IMF and the World Bank. And remember, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of countries in Africa faced economic crisis. And one of the resultant effects of this economic crisis was the World Bank and the international financial institutions prescribing strategies that they thought could get many of these countries out of the woods. And one of the major prescriptions was export processing zones. And the, the, and the idea behind it is that if countries were to establish a specially designated export processing zones, that that could attract a lot of foreign direct investment. And here is the catch. These export processing zones were mainly going to be for exporting finished or raw materials to the international market. And in order for them to be designated as export processing zones, then part of the prescription was that foreign direct investors must be given tax holidays, access to land, and access to cheap labor. So Nigeria experimented with this. But the interesting thing about the export processing zones that Nigeria established in the late 80s and early 90s is the fact that they were all oil export processing zones. One was in Oni, Bonnie, in River State, and the other one was supposed to be established in Calabar, Cross River State. But the one in Bonnie Island, which is uh, which is known as the export processing zone Oni in uh, uh, Bonnie Island, uh, you know the Nigerian government experimented with that, and they were shipping liquefied natural gas from that export processing zone to the international market. Then fast forward to the early 2000s, to the late 1990s and early 2000s, when China began to engage more with Africa, then the idea of special economic zones also became important to the ways in which China tried to engage with Africa. And Nigeria was one of those that became a beneficiary of these special economic zones. So today, there are more than 15 or 20 free trade zones established in partnership with different actors and different states in Nigeria by China. And then when one of these uh, zones is set up, how does that affect the people that are living in that area? That's a very good question. Um, so for the free trade zones, when they are established, uh, the whole notion of the trade zone itself is that it is going to be of benefit to the communities around where the zone is situated. 
and the argument that is uh, 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 the argument that is uh, uh, made in favor of that is the fact that uh, well, a lot of industries that are going to be situated within the freight trade zones will require labor, and that the community members who are around these zones can provide the necessary labor that these industries will require, and that that will help the state to solve one of the most important, one of the most important challenges that the state faces, which is high rate of unemployment. And the question becomes, does the free trade zone established in many of the sites in many parts of the country solve this problem? And the answer is absolutely not, because un unemployment is, all, is still at the highest level ever recorded in Nigeria's history. So what benefits accrues to the communities then? As I said in the book, or as I wrote in the book, there are actually no benefits to the communities. Or the only thing that the community have had to contend with is the fact that they lose their livelihood and they lose access to their land. And in some cases, they also lose access to their ancestral shrines that are important to the ways in which they organize their lives and themselves. I'll use one example, the Lekki Free Trade Zone, or Lekki Free Zone as it is known, which is in Lagos State, Nigeria. So there are a few communities that owns the land where the Free Trade Zone is situated. And as I described in the book, when the Trade Zone was going to be established, the then governor of Lagos State, uh, Mr. Raji Fashola, Went to, uh, they went to the communities to have a meeting with them. And he asked them this question, do you want the free trade zone? Do you want the refinery? And here he was referring to the Dangote refinery, which is also located within the Lekki free zone. And interestingly, all of the members of the community that were present at the meeting echoed the same answer, a resounding no, we do not want the refinery and we do not want the free trade zone. And what was the response of the government or the governor of the state to this answer? The response was, whether you like it or not, we are going to establish this free trade zone in this area. Of course, the, the argument can be made that uh, the governor is justified in one respect, and that is the fact that by virtue of the Land Use Act of 1978, every land in Nigeria belongs to the state. But at the same time, many communities also make the claim that though the state might say that they own the land, but that we should also bear in mind that they've been in existence prior to the constitution of what we know as the post-colonial state today. Therefore, the state that came after them cannot come to claim what they actually own, which is their land. So that's kind of one side of this comparison you're doing. We've got these free trade zones. Then the other side of the comparison is this artisanal oil extraction uh, that 
people are doing. So to kind of get us into that, I think your book does a really good job with photos and you know your own descriptions of what it was like when you visited these sites of, of giving us an idea of how this artisanal oil production uh, works. So could you talk a little bit about that for our, our listeners here? Like what What's going on? How do they actually produce oil products? What's it like to be in these camps where this, uh, this oil production is going on? Yeah, thank you very much for that question. Like I said in the beginning, my interest initially was to write a book about China. But as I began to do the research on China in Nigeria, I took a detour to the Niger Delta because I just wanted to go see some of my former interlocutors whom I interviewed for my first book, Oil, Wealth, and Insurgency in Nigeria. And interestingly for me, by the time I got to the Niger Delta in 2014, by a return visit to the area in 2014, and I visited the Greeks, I completely saw, I, I discovered that something new was already taking shape in the entire creeks or in many of the creeks of the Niger Delta. And this is the establishment of a lot of artisanal refining projects in the region. And one thing that was striking to me was the ways in which these artisanal refineries are choreographed by their owners. Then when I took a deep look at the artisanal refineries, and I reflected on what I've seen at some of the trade zones established by Chinese consortiums in Lagos and Ogun State that I've visited. I saw similarities in the ways in which they were organized. Organized into an enclave, enclave controlled by whoever is licensed to operate in these zones. So when I saw those similarities, one thing that also struck me was in intermingling my interlocutors who were operating these refineries. They never called themselves bandits. They never called themselves former insurgents. They were all referring to themselves as business owners. And that in itself was interesting to me. That, well, what many of these guys were doing are considered to be illegal, illegal in quote, by the Nigerian state. But at the same time, they do not see it. I mean, the operators do not see it as an illegal, illegal enterprise. And they were telling me, or they told me that what they were doing were just expanding the frontiers of a free market society. And that in itself became an interesting uh, category for me to interrogate when I started doing the comparison. And the question that I asked myself is, why shouldn't we actually expand the meaning and definition of what constitutes a special economic zones? I looked into the literature and I saw that all of the definitions of special economic zones revolves around free trade zones that are established and licensed by the state. And I said, we needed to expand this definition to also include those who are not non-state actors, but who believe they are also taking advantage of a neoliberal economic practice that exists in the state. 
or that exists within the ambi amb ambience of, uh, of the state. And Nigeria becomes a classic example of this. The artisanal refineries and Chinese uh, uh, consortia operated free trade zones also become a very good way of understanding the dynamics of how we might expand the definition of what special economic zones actually is. And that is what led me to the comparison of these two ideas. Then you found a really interesting connection between this, the technology of this artisanal oil production and the making of moonshine in the United States during alcohol prohibition. Can you talk about that, that connection and the technology of refinery? Yeah, thank you very much again. After I had studied some of uh, the equipment and some of the infrastructure that uh, the artisanal refiners had put in place uh, for the extraction of oil and refining of uh, crude oil, I went into the archives. I wanted to understand how they came about the technology. But of course, in many of the interviews that I had conducted, they always reference liquor making. They always reference liquor making. And that is understandable because in many of the Niger Delta communities, there is hardly any household in the entire region where Ogogoro, which is a local liquor, is not being made. So there are a lot of people who make Ogogoro in uh, many parts of uh, the Niger Delta. So when I saw that, and they kept referencing the fact that, well, we learned this technology from liquor making. And I wanted to understand how this technology emerged, particularly in the Niger Delta. So that took me to the archives to look at uh, some of the materials about Okoguru production in Nigeria, particularly in the early 1920s or early 1900s up to the mid 1900s. And one interesting thing is that when I got to the archives and started combing through a lot of the materials at the archives, I saw that there was a time, particularly in the 19, late 20s and early 1930s, that there was a boom in Okokoro production. And the colonial administrators, the colonial administrators were opposed to it. And in many of the archival materials, I saw how the colonial administrators were complaining about the fact that many people were brewing Ogogoro in their backyard and selling, and that that was creating a dent in their revenue generation in the colony. Then what I did was to now also look at that and use it as a way of as a, as a as a comparative study between the ways in which the Nigerian state also sees a lot of the artisanal refiners as creating a dent in their revenue generation stream from oil. So I saw that parallel, that while the colonial administrators complained that Ogogoro was creating a dent, and at the same time, here we are in the 21st century, the post-colonial state is also complaining about exactly the same thing. But in this, in this, in this case, a completely different uh, commodity, oil. And that also led me to the infrastructure of Okuguro making. 
And what I realized was that there was a guy who came to the United States as a shipmate in the late 1920s. His name is John Iso. As I stated in the book, this guy came to the United States, and this was during the era of Great Depression, where Congress had also uh, 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 legislated against moonshine. But by the time the United States Congress passed an act that prohibits the making and consumption of moonshine, rather than moonshine, rather than rather than moonshine being uh, uh sorry i'll take that back i'll take that again so after the prohibition act was promulgated into law by the united states congress everyone thought that people were going to stop brewing moonshine but rather than people stopping to brew moonshine what happened was that a lot of people started doing it in their backyards and it was at this period that this guy, John Iso, who was a shipmate from Nigeria, from Nigeria, came to the United States and saw how people were making moonshine. So by the time he returned to Nigeria in the early 1930s, he returned with some of the ways in which moonshine was being made. And he introduced that first to his uh, area, Alaba which is also part of the Niger Delta. So when he introduced that into the area, it, well, let me, let me also make it clear that it is not as if liquor was strange to the communities. They had their own way of making liquor. But what John Isaac introduced was the ways in which you can turn liquor and make it look like a whiskey. And as I saw in the colonial records, that after Iso, uh, John Iso or Iso, John Iso introduced the, the art of Oguguru making into the area that it spread like white fire. And I'm quoting directly one of uh, uh, the materials from uh, by the archives that it spread like white fire in the entire region. And in some of these communities, they refer to Oguguru as America. And when I was in the community interviewing people about the meaning of Oguguru and why they call it America. So, so, so for some of the elders, they recollected how someone brought the idea of Oguguru making from outside the shores of Nigeria. And their assumption is that that person must have come from America. Uh, America. And they named the drink America. So I was able to make the connection that, well, ISO was here in the United States. He returned to Nigeria with the technology of moonshine picking, and now he's making moonshine, and it's spreading across the length and breadth of the country. And in some, in some communities, they realized that it came from him, who had just returned from the United States. They call it America. And in some other communities, they call it Ogogoro. And in other communities, they call it Christmas. And Christmas because they believe if you drink it too much, it can get into your head and make you go crazy. So it is this same technology that a lot of the refiners now saw and modified to produce refined oil. And as many of them told me that the technology of refining oil is similar to the technology of refining liquor. 
of growing liquor. So they did the modification, put the infrastructure together, and they saw that it worked. And that is how they were able to establish all of these enclaves where oil is refined in many parts of the creeks of the Niger Delta. All right. So then in the book, you argue that both the free trade zones and the artisanal oil production lead to a social death of the environment. So what do you mean by that idea of a social death of the environment? Yeah, thank you very much. So when I put all of these things together and I look at the, the consequences on the environment, I came to the conclusion that, uh, uh, well, what the artisanal refineries are doing and the Dangote refinery that is in the free trade zone in Lagos, as well as other enterprises that are in, engaged in light manufacturing in many of these communities uh, that are called free trade zones in Nigeria. What they are doing is basically condemning the people and the environment into a form of social death. And the whole idea of social death, I borrowed from Orlando Patterson's idea or Orlando Patterson's uh, 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 notion of social death. We uh, he had uh, argued that uh, when you look at the condition of slaves in the Americas during the era of slavery, that even though they were alive, but at the same time, you look at their social condition, it is as if they were non-existent. They were not in existence. Therefore, what this condition of, of slaves in the Americas showed to us was the fact that they were experiencing a form of social death. So I took this idea and applied it to the entire enclaves uh, uh, of the artisanal refiners as well as the freight trade zones and came to the conclusion that, well, we can also make the same argument or apply the same logic that what a lot of these communities and the people are experiencing is a form of social death. Therefore, the environment and the people have been condemned to a form of social death. And why did I come to this conclusion? We look at the consequences of artisanal, mine, artisanal refining as well as oil refining and oil exploration in the Niger Delta. So we see the damage that it does to the environment. And we see the damage that it does to the people. Then we look at the free trade zones, where people's land have been taken, where refiner a refinery is going to be emitting emissions into the atmosphere, where people's livelihood practices have been destroyed. And I see the parallel here. And I say that these, all of these are a form of condemning the environment and the people into a form of social death because they are in existence, but at the same time, they are all life, livelihood practices, and the reason why they are in existence of their humanity have been taken away from them. And here I look at the, the, the interview that I had with one of my interlocutors, where the interlocutor told me that, uh, well, that, uh, uh, that she's a Christian and she's read in our Bible that there is a place called hell and there is a place called heaven. That even though she's never been to hell before, but that what she experiences 
right now as a result of the ways in which the enclaves are operating is such that it is worse than hell that is described in the Bible. And as she says, uh, and I'm quoting her directly here, that, well, I've, I, may ne I may never have been to hell before, but I know what hell means. And I'm experiencing hell as we speak right now. So in that sense, one can say that what she is experiencing and what the environment is experiencing is a form of social death. In the book, I was impressed by the breadth of different people that you talked to, you know, from like the woman that you just quoted that feels like she's living in hell to, you know, government ministers and Chinese business leaders and stuff and sort of all across the spectrum of people that you were able to talk to. So what was that like? What was it like talking to these very different sorts of people and, you know, persuading them to share their stories with you? Yeah, thank you very much for that uh, question. Uh, you know, I, 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 I've been working in the, re in, the, in the region or in Nigeria generally for as a, uh, a scholar for more than two decades. And I've been able to establish a good working relationship with uh, many of the communities and many of the, uh, uh, the even the business leaders too. And uh, uh, so when I'm around, I, you know, I make it clear to them that what I'm doing is for research purposes. And sometimes some of them are, you know, uh, uh, ready and willing to share their stories with me. And I'll, 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 I'll use the example of uh, one of the interlocutors that I interviewed uh, uh, in the book. And this particular person had actually lost a job to a Chinese company, but he was happy. And that in itself was a surprise to me. And the question you ask is why will someone who just lost a job to, an, to a competitor be happy? It is because to him, China's engagement with Africa is seen from the purview of spreading communism. And that in itself was interesting to me. And this particular guy, this particular interlocutor, uh, considers himself to be a socialist. And uh, when I said that, okay, you bid it for this contract and you lost the contract to a Chinese firm, now you are not going to be able to provide for you and your family if you do not get another job. So why are you happy? So to aim, what China is doing is to position itself as an adversary to the United States, who, according to him, is an imperial state. So to him, China is helping to fight imperialism. And when I pointed out to him that China is not fighting imperialism because China is out to make profit, and that the company that outbidded you is out to make profit and not to spread socialism or communism. So, but he didn't believe me. So to him, as long as there is an alternative to the United States as a dominant power, he is fine, even if he's losing his job. So that is one interlocutor. That being well, there is another one, one of the artisanal refining guys that I met in the creeks. 
when I was interviewing him, and I asked whether he considers what he's doing as illegal, and his response was no. So he considered himself a businessman. He said, if the oil companies could do it, and they are making profit from it, why shouldn't he, a son of the soil, son of the soil in quotes, and in Nigeria, you know, when they say someone is the son of the soil, it means someone who is originally from that place. So he says he that considers himself originally, originally from that place and that his ancestors bequeathed the wealth to him, why shouldn't he benefit from it? So to him, he is a businessman who is benefiting from a neoliberal economic system that suggests or that requires that if you have the business acumen, you can establish a business and make money from it. So as you can see, but you know, there several of these interlocutors, you know, they the the ways in which they understand the uh, 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 positionality in these enclaves is such that it presents us with different ideas and different interpretations of how things are actually organized within the enclaves. All right. So as we're moving towards the end of our time here, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. That's that's uh, there are so many people whose help was uh, important to writing this book. And as I always say, uh, you know, uh, if you if you read my first book and if you've read this book, you will see that I always have a long list of acknowledgement. And the reason is that I believe a project like this is not something that can be accomplished with just uh, one person. So it takes a community to build. And this book took a community to build. So there are several people that are, are central to how uh, this came into being. And uh, uh, if I start mentioning names, then... <laughs> You know, we're not going to end today because there are several or that there are several names that I could mention that I'll say these are the people that are important to how this book was produced. But more importantly, I would like to thank my family for their support and for always uh, being there for me when uh, I need them the most, which is when I need time to write it and I need time to produce this. And my editors at Indiana University Press, I would also like to uh, give a shout out to, to my editors. They were patient with me. It took time to produce, but at the end of the day, it is out. And I'm glad. Uh, uh, I appreciate uh, the support that they gave. Then my department, the Department of Afro-American African Studies, the African Studies Center, then the Department of Anthropology, and a lot of my colleagues who read uh, 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 various iteration of uh, the, the book. I really appreciate their support. So these are some of the people that call up at conferences everywhere that have presented chapters and the draft of the manuscript across the world. So those are the people I'll give a shout out to. They were all instrumental to making the book what it is. All right. And then that brings us to our traditional final question, which is what are you working on next? Thank you very much. Uh, right now, I'm working on uh, climate politics. And uh, uh, what is interesting to me here is uh, uh, the fact that as I was completing this job, I mean, as I was completing this book, 
I also realized that uh, uh, a lot of the devastating effects of oil exploration in Nigeria and elsewhere has been its impact on our climate. But while everyone seems to be talking about climate solutions, climate solutions and renewable energies, but no one is talking about what I consider to be the afterlife of oil. And this is what I am particularly interested in right now, the afterlife of oil. And what I mean by this is that when we think about the huge infrastructure that is put in place in order to extract oil, then the question we ought to be asking as we are thinking about climate change is that when we now transition, transition to renewable, what will become of this infrastructure? And uh, 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 as I was finishing this book, I used one of those examples in one of the chapters. And the example is Oloibiri. Oloibiri is the first place where an oil well was dug in Nigeria for commercial purposes. And in 1958, about 5,000 barrels of oil was shipped to the international market, all of them from Oloibiri in the Niger Delta region. So the lifespan of an oil well, it's about 40 to 50 years. But today, Oloibiri remains desolate. So the oil infrastructure that was used to extract this oil in the 1950s are still there. But because the well is dry, there is no oil left there. But the infrastructure today becomes like a playground for community kids. So when we're thinking about renewables and we're thinking about climate change, we're not thinking about what becomes of all of these infrastructures. And that is what I call the afterlife of oil. So my new project is about the afterlife of oil. Then the second project that I'm working on now is uh, uh, a book that I tentatively titled King of the Delta, Kings of the Delta. And here, I want to take a look at the afterlife again of three of the prominent militant leaders during the insurgency against the Nigerian state as well as the multinational oil corporations. So one of these guys is today a multi, it's today a contractor to the federal government of Nigeria who has the sole contract to police the waterways of Nigeria. And the other one is a king. And another one is considers himself to be ambassador extraordinary. So the question that I'm asking is that, how is it that these guys who took up arms against the Nigerian state in the mid to in the mid 2000s fighting to claim what they to fight him for what they claim to be their own which is oil have now transitioned to partnering where necessary with the state so I'm interested so these are some of the projects that I'm interested in right now and I'm working on the two book manuscripts one is uh, the one that I call the afterlife of oil then the second one is uh, uh, the kings of the Delta afterlife of oil is about the climate politics 
Then the Kings of the Delta is about these three interesting uh, characters or individuals who were insurgents yesterday, but today are uh, important personalities in the Delta. All right. Well, those both sound like really interesting projects, and we'd love to have you back to talk about them once those get published. Thank you very much. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been a conversation with Omolade Adumbi, author of Enclaves of Exception, Special Economic Zones and Extractive Practices in Nigeria, published last year by Indiana University Press.